Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The Bible is about liberation, with Exodus providing the central motif, you know, the Jews' exodus from slavery. This is the motif for understanding Christ's liberating work. And a kind of test of whether Christians have understood this liberation or even understood this motif is whether they have a theological understanding that preserves liberation as key. It is connected to how slavery is viewed. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philemon argues for the manumission of Onesimus. He said, you know, really he's arguing that Onesimus would be free. In Corinthians, he recommends slaves to gain freedom if it's possible. And it's not until really Gregory of Nyssa, after Paul, that we have a theologian that is anti-slavery. I mean, I think many are anti-slavery, but he gives us a theology and a clear statement which closes the possibility of Christians involving themselves in slavery. And what Gregory brings out is the New Testament admonition connecting salvation to putting on the virtue of Christ. So Matthew 5, 48, for example, says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this seems key. And the way we are liberated then is clear. Liberation is the result of imitating who Christ is and participating in Christ. And so with this understanding that liberation is the theme of Scripture, actually I I had too many examples and I took out most of my examples. So I'm going to give you two. You know, we could have just gone through the New Testament. So don't, but don't get nervous. I'm just going to do two examples. The book of Hebrews re-narrates Israel's history really as an extended exodus. That, you know, the Christians are pictured like Israel coming out of the slavery of Egypt and now they're in the wilderness and he says don't fail to enter in to the promised rest. And of course the promised rest is the rest given in Christ. And really then the end of the Exodus comes to its culmination in the understanding that Christ is the true high priest. Christ provides true rest. Christ defeats Satan. Christ defeats the fear of death. And that's this verse then, Hebrews 2, 14 to 16. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For 
Assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And so he pictures Christians as the true descendants of Abraham. He pictures angels as mediating the law to Moses, but Christ then is the final mediator. The other example, we could have taken many from Paul, but Paul continually talks about liberation from sin in terms of liberation from slavery. Let's look at Galatians 4, 1 to 5. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But Christ redeemed those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We could have gone through Matthew, who pictures Christ as the true Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. We could have done the Gospel of John, who depicts Jesus as the true manna from heaven, the true water, the true light. But John depicts then Jesus as true exodus from slavery. So the theme of scripture as the liberating work of God is captured in this central motif of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt, which the New Testament explains as being completed in the liberating work of Jesus from sin. And the presumption is that Christ deepens and expands this liberating work to include overturning every form of enslaving power. Liberation from slavery is not a mere metaphor to be spiritualized away, but it refers to real work and real world liberation. And so there's a definitive link between the liberating work of Moses and Jesus. And so Gregory of Nyssa, like Paul and Origen, presumes that the word that Moses encountered is the incarnate Christ. He sees the life of Moses as a journey toward learning to be like Jesus. He says that Moses was always becoming greater and never stopped in his growth. He had attained growth even at the beginning when he considered the reproach of Christ more exalted than the kingdom of Egypt and chose to be ill-treated in company with God's people rather than to enjoy for a time the pleasures of sin. He's equating sin with slavery in Egypt and he's equating liberation with the liberation that Christ brings and he's saying that's what Moses experienced. And in tying the journey of Moses from exodus to slavery to the Christian journey, Gregory is focused on the development of virtue. But he's also focused on acting and doing, the acting and doing of God and the Christian's acting and doing, especially in his creative and liberating activity through Christ. And so we've been talking about various forms of Christocentrism. And in Gregory's Christocentrism, his focus on the incarnation, it develops a particular understanding of participation in God through Christ, a particular metaphysic. 
And in the titles of Christ that we put on the virtues, you know, the, the, a particular set of virtues that are liberating, literally liberating, which would serve to counter the failures, I think, of a, a kind of modern theology. And so in the theme or thesis of scripture, the very meaning of Christianity is liberation. If that's true, then measuring where Christianity has or has not been enacted, it can be measured by where liberation has or has not occurred, right? And obviously there are many forms of enslavement, many forms of oppression, but maybe a simple test of a particular form of theology or Christianity is, is to ask, what form of the faith is most responsible for the transatlantic slave trade? Now you might say, well, that's an odd question. But the fact is that the transatlantic slave trade was introduced by Christian Europeans. And the church, we might say, was the backbone in many ways of the slave trade. And it would seem to indicate it wasn't just a moral failure, but there was something wrong with how people understood their Christianity, right? The added fact that most of the slave ship captains and slave traders were good Christians illustrates the blindness of certain forms of theology. The first slave ship that came to the Americas, the captain was Sir John Hawkins. And he was a religious man. In fact, he insisted that his crew serve God daily. He insisted that they love one another. And the name of his slave ship was the Good Ship Jesus. Some would say Catholicism is to blame for the modern slave trade. And certainly, you know, the five major countries that dominated slavery and the slave trade in the New World. They were Catholic. Spain, Portugal, France, England, or at least they retained Catholic influences. The Netherlands. We might point out that just in 2016, Georgetown University, a key Catholic university, offered a public apology after acknowledging that they had sold 272 slaves 188 years prior in order to save the school from financial ruin. On the other hand, the Anglican Church invested in slavery directly and profited directly from the slave trade. A report commissioned by the Anglican Church found last June that a predecessor of its investment fund called Queen Anne's Bounty invested significant amounts in the slave trading company, the South Sea Company, in the 18th century. And so uh, the chief executive, the church commissioner said, there's no doubt that those who were making the investment knew that the South Sea Company was trading in enslaved people. And that's now a source of real shame for us and for which we apologize. And so the Anglican Church is now planning to spend $121 million to address or redress this shameful involvement in the slave trade. Now, before we get 
too happy with our own movement. You know, the slave trade, or the United States, the slave trade involved us, the restoration movement, or at least we had many slave owners, but that's true of many denominations. You know, the slave owners, probably every significant major denomination is represented. Most prominently, the Southern Baptist Convention which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, it came into being in 1845 as the Church of Southern Slaveholders. Alexander Campbell, one of the key leaders in the Restoration Movement, who owned slaves, who also released those slaves, but he said at one point in 1845, there is not one verse in the Bible inhibiting slavery, but many regulating it. It is not, then, we conclude, immoral. Frederick Douglass, who was himself a freed slave, or one who had gotten his freedom, he describes one of the men that owned him as a very devout Methodist. Edward Covey, he said, would make a short prayer every morning and a long prayer at night. And Douglas says it may seem strange, but at times he would appear more devotional uh, than anyone he knew. And Covey would take slaves of other masters and break them like a, somebody might break horses mainly by whipping them, and Douglas describes being whipped again and again by Covey. Douglas writes, he's kind of writing ironically here, added to the natural good qualities of Mr. Covey, he was a professor of religion, a pious soul, a member and a class leader in the Methodist Church. Other than the Quakers and the Seventh-day Adventists, most every denomination was complicit in some way in slavery. Now, I'm not telling the other half of the story, and that is we could also find examples of abolitionists in these movements. But it seems clear that Jesus' continuation of the liberating action of God in Moses seems to have been gotten lost among those who enslave and oppress their fellow human beings in the name of Jesus. Now, sin enslaves morally, it enslaves psychologically, socially, and arises in more subtle forms than chattel slavery. But a theology that cannot prevent literal slavery is probably not up to preventing or countering slavery in its more subtle forms. In other words, White Christians in the United States, I'm afraid, have inherited a theology that is often enslaving. To put a, a finer point on it, virtue, discipleship, being made in the image and likeness of Jesus does not figure into a theological inheritance that promotes slavery whether it is the fault of the reformers, whether it's the fault of a corrupt Catholicism, I think that we've lost the development of the virtues of being like Jesus. We've lost a practical discipleship. We've lost a real world righteousness 
as part of our understanding of what salvation is. And this then creates a fundamental shift from the New Testament. Not only in the texture, you know, the Christian life, but even in how we perceive God. And so today, you know, this is the Pew Research Center, but you can read statistics on this, on divorce, on every moral marker of Christianity, that Christianity is no predictor of moral aptitude. It's no predictor of manner of life. And this then stands in sharp contrast clearly to New Testament Christianity and the Christianity of the early church. And so it may be that uh, Gregory of Nyssa best sums up this early faith And he says, to be called a Christian means that one becomes like God through Christ. Not only the name of Christ, you know, when we become a Christian, we take on his name. And in taking on his name, we take on his characteristics. And so he illustrates, Jesus is called king. Authority over all things as hinted at by the name kingship while purity and freedom from all passion and all evil are specified, the Christian then inherits the title of kingship or rule over the passions. When we put on Christ, we put on his virtue. By the same token, all the names of Christ are characteristics of Christ, you know, his various titles. So Christ is righteousness itself in Hebrews. He is wisdom and power in Corinthians. He is the truth, John 14.6. He is goodness itself, John 7.12. He is the life, John 11.25. Jesus is salvation, Acts 4.12. He is incorruption. Corinthians 15. He is immutability and changelessness and every lofty concept indicated by those names. And if each of these titles and characteristics are included in the name of Christ and we then take on the name of Christ as Christians, by extension, we should be taking on these virtues. If we are united to him in faith, we are named together with him who excels the names interpretive of the incorruptible nature. It is entirely necessary that as many concepts concerning that incorruptible nature are contemplated with the name, that they should also become those conforming to our having that name. When we take the name of Christ, we become like Christ. A very basic, simple Christian idea. One puts on Christ by putting on the virtues of Christ, by doing what Christ did, and by participating in who he is. It's not that we're left alone to do this apart from Christ. But we're enabled to do it through who he is. God in Christ shares salvation. And in sharing salvation, he shares virtue, righteousness, goodness with his followers. And this is the meaning of the name Christian. 
So those who are called to become like God must imitate Christ. They be, because Christ himself is the perfect manifestation of divine perfection. And therefore the names that are given to him, they are not simply descriptors of his humanity, but Gregory assumes a, a direct equivalence between the titles given to Christ and the divine nature. So remember the passage, we are to partake of the divine nature, we do that through Christ. That God is not who he is apart from the perfections found in Jesus, found in the incarnation. God's perfection is the perfection of Jesus Christ that is given to us. Whoever imitates Christ by conforming themselves to his titles, kingship, righteousness, wisdom, power, goodness, life, salvation, they have fulfilled the goal of Christianity and they've taken on the virtuous life, imitating the perfection of God. And so literally the Christian becomes perfect as Christ is perfect and thus becomes perfect like the Heavenly Father. If we do not do that, if one does not imitate the virtue of Christ, can we truly be said to share in his name? Should we carry his name? Gregory asks, if someone puts on the name of Christ, but does not exhibit in his life what is indicated by the term, such a person belies the name. For it is not possible for Christ not to be justice and purity and truth and estrangement from all evil. Nor is it possible to be a Christian, that is truly a Christian, without displaying in oneself a participation in these virtues. And so the incongruity of taking the name Christian without participating in the reality of Christ, that was inconceivable to Gregory, but inconceivable to the early Christians and inconceivable to the writers of the New Testament. Gregory writes point blank, his definition of Christianity. If one can give a definition of Christianity, we shall define it as follows. Christianity is an imitation of the divine nature. Putting on the divine nature in Christ, that is Christianity. Now he says, let no one object to the de definition as being immoderate and exceeding the lowliness of our nature. He says it does not go beyond our nature. Indeed, if anyone considers the first condition of man, he will find through the scriptural teachings that the definition does not exceed the measure of the nature. That is, the first man was created in the imitation and likeness of God. So Moses, talking about man, says that God made man. He created him in the image of God. And the word Christianity, therefore, brings back to him his original good fortune. It brings him back to the original goal, being like Christ, participating in God. The imitation of the divine nature is the definition then 
The gospel commands the imitation in our way of life. And the actions this involves are clear. Our being made strangers to every wickedness as far as may be possible. To be pure from its defilements in deed and word and thought. This is truly the imitation of the divine perfection. And what of what has to do with God in heaven. God commands that his children be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. And with the command, the possibility presents itself. The original image was set to receive the divine likeness. Not due to its own nature, but because God's nature is one that can be shared. And we can receive that image. Thus the Christian is called. He's called to be perfect as also your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew 5.45 For when he called the true father and the father of those who believed he wanted those who were born through him to be like the perfection of goods contemplated by him and in him. And so this notion it's a very straightforward notion in the New Testament. I think this is kind of blocked by a modern theology. It's counter to much Catholic and Protestant nominalist conceptions of God, in which God is pictured as inaccessible. And I really think it amounts to something like an alternative salvation. This form of salvation is no mere legal fiction. It's not really tied strictly to the church's sacraments. It's not primarily concerned with escaping hell and going to heaven. But it is putting on the righteousness and the righteous nature of God. What God is doing in Christ, it's not extraneous to the nature of God, but it's part of who God is. And so Gregory, and I think the early church in the New Testament, left no room for an immoral Christianity. It left no room for a Christianity of failed virtue. It left no room for a Christianity without discipleship. And certainly there is no room for slavery. Gregory considers slavery the height of pride to presume that one can own fellow humans. He says when someone turns the property of God into his own property and arrogates dominion to his own kind so as to think of himself the owner of men and women what he is doing is but overstepping his own nature through pride, regarding himself as something different from his subordinates. Gregory is among the earliest of the church fathers to speak out against the institution, providing the scathing criticism in his homily on Ecclesiastes. And the title here of the sermon is The Evils of Slave Owning. And this homily probably is one of the most potent late ancient reactions against institutional slavery. And the point is that one cannot live a virtuous life while participating in the prideful practice of slaveholding. That just seems clear to us, right? And with it then we need to have a theology, an understanding of the New Testament that supports that understanding. Gregory says it's a gross example of arrogance 
for a human being to think himself the master of his own kind. The one made on the specific terms that he should be the owner of the earth and appointed to government by the creator. Him you bring under the yoke of slavery as though defying and fighting against the divine creed. You have forgotten the limits of your authority and that your rule is confined to control over things without reason. And so his point is this is a challenge to who God is. The slaveholder denies God and he denies human nature and he presumes to play God. But more important here is that I think the, the theology that brings this out is one that we need to emulate. Certainly in its abhorrence of slavery, but also in its lifting up Christian virtues. This understanding entailed a theology that imitates Christ. It participates in Christ. And this is integral to the Christian life. And so the virtuous life is the Christian life. And it consists in the imitation of Christ. In conforming ourselves to his values, his virtues. In the titles that he takes up on himself, we take upon ourselves in calling ourselves Christians. And thus we can attain the goal of Christian virtue, to become like God. And so this definition of Christianity, it leaves no room for a failed, immoral, virtueless form of the faith, but it liberates from every form of enslavement. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.